Hey guys, uh, I'm Sisha. I'm a third year engineering student and I will be doing the Bible reading. So if you just turn your page, great. Um, we're reading verses 1 to 14 today. Then Joshua, oh sorry. Cool. Okay. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them to, up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in their pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear by the, by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign um, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Thanks, Cicle. Um, you'll find an outline of where we're going uh, opposite the passage, so really helpful to have that open uh, in front of you. And I just need to set up the PowerPoint. question for you, and this may or may not feel relevant, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you find it hard to believe that God will keep his promises to you? Really believe, not just tick it off, but actually believe it. A friend of mine once said to me, I'd be more interested in Christianity if you Christians believed what you say you believe. I sort of was a bit shocked, and he went on to say, well, you say that you believe that God's going to give you heaven, but you live just like the rest of us. You don't believe that. You accumulate stuff just at the same rate as everybody else. You invest in experiences, travelling the world, doing this and that, just like other people who don't believe there's a life to come, who think they've got to get it all now. And I must admit, that hit home pretty hard. Like, do I believe what I say I believe? Do I believe the promises of God? 
I suspect one of the reasons we have trouble believing God's promises, if we do, is that our experiences of promises generally are not that good. Coming up to election time in, in our state, and I think we've all learnt to just be a little bit sceptical about the promises politicians make. They'll do anything to win the election and get into power. At least most of us are convinced of that, so we're a bit sceptical. But it happens too with advertising, doesn't it? Advertising promises the earth. If you uh, drive a certain sort of car, that's what your life will be like. You'll be jumping through the roof uh, with happiness all the time. Or if you use a particular sort of cream, your skin will be like Andy McDowell's every day, every moment. And we know not to believe, I hope. Uh, But even with friends often, uh, we're we're a bit sceptical about their promises. We're not always comfortable to take them at their word. I got a text from Rosemary, my wife, once, and and she said, I'll buy some milk on the way home. (laughs) Guess what I did? I too bought some milk on the way home. When I got home, Rosemary said, didn't you believe me? I said I'd get it. And I said, just being safe. (laughs) But sometimes I think we're like that with God. Yes, I I sort of believe your promises, God, but just to be safe, I I can't really rely on what you're saying. Not, Not really. I can't stake my life on it. The book of Joshua that we're looking at this first half of the semester is about the promises of God and the difference they make in our lives. Last week in Joshua 1, if you were with us, we saw that God made some promises to Joshua. Joshua is now the the, the leader of God's people. They're on the edge of the land that God has promised to give them. They've spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness and God says, now's the time I'm going to give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. And then he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Now, I want you to notice the order of that. God doesn't say, Joshua, I want you to be a courageous man. Just just dredge it up from somewhere. You've got some backbone, haven't you? Be a man. Come on, stand up. And if you are, then you'll succeed. No, he says, you will succeed. I guarantee it. Therefore, be courageous. It's a whole different way of thinking, of, of living. The promises of God are meant to be the foundation on which Joshua builds his life and his action. But it starts by chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies into the promised land to have a look at Jericho and the surrounding area. And you might ask, why do they need spies? Well, militarily, it sounds a very clever thing to do, doesn't it? You want to go and conquer a country? Well, you want to find out what sort of military strength it's got, how thick the walls are, all that sort of thing. Sounds good to send spies, but if you know the history of Israel, a red flag should come up at this point. Because spies have come up in the story once before. 40 years before this, Numbers 13, if you want to look it up, Israel at that time was on the edge of the Promised Land. They were about to go in, and what did they do? They sent some spies in to see what this land was like because they didn't have Google Earth. They just had to go and have a look. And the story turned out disastrously. The spies came back and said, yeah, God was right, it's a good land, but God was wrong, we can't take it. No no way. The spies were a sign of their lack of faith in God. And that's how they start this time. And spies maybe remind you of something else. You think about secret agents. I guess most of us think of James Bond movies or Killing Eve or something like that. 
And the place they send them from has that sort of tone to it. They send them from Shittim. Sikwe, you did well. Most of us would stumble over that word. It's the sort of word that sets year eight boys giggling, doesn't it? Shittim. It just, it's hard to say it. But for us, it's just awkward. It's like in a loop. Uh, but for them, it was, it was much, much worse because it would have reminded them of an, another incident around the same time as the spies in Numbers 25 when they were in Shittim. And I'll show you what happened. This is Numbers 25, when Israel was staying in Shittim. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality, literally played the harlot with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal, bowed down before those gods. Israel yoked themselves, sort of married themselves to the Baal of Peor, the the god, and the Lord's anger burned against them. It was one of the lowest days in the history of Israel. And now they set out from Shittim, these two spies. And what do they do? They enter the house of a prostitute. A harlot. They played the harlot back then. Now they enter the house of a harlot. Now, what are they doing there, do you reckon? Well, your guess is as good as mine. And it's probably right. No one got the joke. That doesn't work, does it? What do you reckon they're doing? Two men in the house of a prostitute. What do you think they're there for? All the commentaries, almost all of them play sort of gymnastics with the linguistics to try and get around the obvious. But I think the the writer wants us to think about the obvious, what they were doing in the house of a prostitute, a sex industry worker. I don't know whether you find that surprising, that the story of how God keeps his promises starts with spies in the house of a prostitute. It's starting to show marked similarities to other spy stories like 007 or Austin Powers. This is not a good start, is it? If this is the story of Israel trusting the promises of God, it's not starting well. And then it gets worse. In verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. They're they're detected. The secret police are banging on Rahab's door, demanding that she hand them over. It's a tense moment. What's going to happen to our heroes, these spies? Surely she'll hand them over. You might even be secretly thinking they deserve it too. But the writer is a good storyteller. He's strung us along by holding back a piece of information that only comes in verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. That's what she'd done. And she goes on to lie through her teeth. Yes, the men did come to me. Oh, yeah, yep, you got the information right. But I didn't know where they came from. I plead ignorance. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch, uh, catch up with them. She lies through her teeth to protect them. Now, why would she do that? Uh, She's risking her neck for these foreigners. Is she just another one of these gullible women that turn up in spy stories like James Bond, who can't help but fall for the, the handsome, dashing spy? Is that what it's all about? No, that's not what it is. But we need to come back to that question. Because you've got to realise what she's doing is treason. She's aiding and abetting the enemy of their city. It's a capital offence if she's found out. So why is she doing it? But we also got the question, how on earth is she going to escape? They're now trapped in the city. It's shut up tighter than WA borders under lockdown. They can't get out. And there's there's soldiers and army combing the countryside. Uh, Surely, although they've uh, survived for the moment... They're still in deep trouble. 
Well, while the tension of that simmers, the writer wants us to listen to the more important question of why. And the answer comes in verses 8 to 11. And this is really the core of the story. Why did this pagan prostitute save the spies? And the answer is as surprising to us, I think, as it would have been to those spies. In fact, the spies say nothing to verse 14. They're they're speechless through the story. The answer really comes in verse 9. She says to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. I know, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is giving you this land, including Jericho. Can you imagine the surprise on the spies' faces when they heard that? Especially if they they came for what I think they came for. She knows that God is giving Israel the land. Israel is having trouble believing it. Joshua is having trouble believing that, but she believes it. She knows that God has promised to give them the land, and she believes God's promise. And that belief, that knowledge, has created fear. (laughs) It's described in verse 9, isn't it? A great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Have you ever seen someone melt in fear? It's sort of embarrassing, isn't it? They're just falling apart in front of your eyes. Well, she said that's what's happening to all of us. That knowledge has created fear. If God is doing something, it's terrifying to be on the wrong side of God's actions. That's what she knows. How does she know it? Was she sitting at home one day and she suddenly just knew that God was going to do this, just intuitively? Or did God give her a special sign? One day, did the water, uh, did her uh, her empty bucket suddenly be full of water? And she said, ah, that must be God. I know what he's doing now. Or maybe she was at a worship service and God's power was palpable and she just felt it and knew it was going to happen. No. Listen to what she says. Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. How did she know? Well, she heard about what God had already done in keeping his promises. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand. God had given them this stunning victory over Sion and Og, part of the land that God had promised to give them. That is, put it in our language, she'd heard God's gospel as it was at that stage of fulfilment. She heard and believed. It's worth asking, I think, how will my friends come to believe? So I've I've got friends. I'd love them to believe that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour of all and and for them. What's going to do it? What what will help them? Well, this helps us, I think, see. It's by hearing. Hearing what God has done, how God has kept his promises, especially hearing how he's done that in Jesus through his death and resurrection that happened about 2,000 years ago and his promise to return to bring a new creation, a whole new world. How will they hear? Well, they've got to actually hear, don't they? They've got to maybe read the reports of it. One of the things I'm excited about this year is that um, I'm praying, and I hope you will join me in doing this, that God will give me opportunities to just read Mark's gospel with people around uni. Just have them read the story about Jesus and how God kept his promise to us through Jesus' death and his resurrection. We call it Uncover Mark. Just we want people to uncover the truth about Jesus.
I hope you'll join me in doing that, praying for it. But she doesn't simply melt with fear. Everyone in Jericho is doing that. She does something with her fear. You see, her fear leads to action. The rest of Jericho, it doesn't. But for hers, it does. Reflect for a minute. When you are afraid of something, there's various sorts of action you can take. Um, If you play sport, you'll know this feeling, I think. You turn up for your sporting game, whether it's netball or football or whatever it might be, or cricket, and you suddenly realise that the team you're playing today smashed the team that smashed us last week. And you think, oh, (laughs) I'm melting in fear. This is not going to go well. Now, what do you you normally do when you're melting with fear? I guess most of us just dig in, don't we? Ah, well, come on, motivate. Good speech. We can do this. Well, maybe we can get the score below embarrassing. But there's another option. You realise that? When you're melting in fear, there's another option. You can change sides. (laughs) Now, that might never have crossed your mind. And in sport, it seems like the wrong thing to do, doesn't it? But in life, it's the right thing to do. If there is something so big that it scares the pants off you, to ignore it, to just dig your heels in, is stupid, isn't it? That's what the rest of Jericho do, but that's not what she does. She changes sides. She changes loyalty. That's why she's protected the the spies, because she's on their side now. That's what she's done. And and it goes further in verses 12 and 13. She says to the spies, Now please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family, because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sign that you'll spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and you'll save us from death. You notice what's strange about this? Because in the moment... The spies are in her hand. All she's got to do is one word to the police and they're gone. But she treats them like they've got all the cards in their hand. Please be kind to me. See, she really does believe that God is going to do it, doesn't she? And they say, yeah. She places all her hopes in the kindness of the spies, really in the kindness of God. She stakes her life. Her future on God's promises. She knows that if that cataclysm is coming, it really doesn't matter what state her house is in. It really doesn't matter how much money she's got in the bank. It doesn't matter how many friends she's kept. Everything will change on that day. And so she stakes her life on the promises of God. But here's a pagan prostitute. Although I suspect she's not so pagan anymore. In fact, I suspect she's not a prostitute anymore. Something has changed who has changed loyalties. There's the why. Why did she hide the spies? But we still get that question, how? And in verse 15, we're told a little piece of information that the writer has kept back from us, so you'd listen to the why. And he says in verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window because the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Ah, that's how they get out. (laughs) If if he told you that right back at the beginning, you wouldn't have listened to the important part, would you? But you have, I hope. And now we find out that's how she escaped. Her house, in the wall of Jericho, she can just let them out. And she makes arrangements with them uh, for her salvation when Jericho does fall. And then in verse 24, the spies report back. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of you. Notice how strange that is too. What would you expect spies to report? Military data. 
How many soldiers? How thick the walls are? No, not a word of that. What they report back is God is keeping his promises. That's what they report back. Because that's actually what Israel needs to know. The spies now believe it. They didn't believe it before. At least they had trouble believing it. But the words of a pagan prostitute who has believed it convinces them. And Israel is encouraged. Yes, God will do what he's promised. We can trust him, which is exactly what they need. You see, Joshua is not a story of Israel's heroic, courageous conquest. No, not at all. It's the story of the certainty of God keeping his word, of God giving them the land, not of their heroic conquest of the land. And as you see the story unfold, it's one of the things that encourages me to trust the reliability of the Bible. That's actually telling me about real history. Because when, you know that the phrase, the winners write history. It's always true, isn't it? It's only the winners who write history. And when winners write history, they always write themselves up as the heroes of the history. Think about Gallipoli. I don't know whether you realise this, but Gallipoli, which we hold up as the great beginning of the Australian ethos of our bravery and mateship, was an unmitigated disaster. But that's not how we write it up. We write it up as if we're heroes, because that's how everyone writes history. But when Israel writes her history, they're not the heroes. They're showed up again and again and again as being very fragile, very fallible. It's God who keeps his promises. And is the story of a Canaanite sex industry worker who seeks God's mercy. So let's zoom out for a minute. And think about Rahab and the Gospels. If you think about the whole story of the Bible, this fits in about 600 years before God made some programmatic promises to a guy called Abraham. He revealed to Abraham his purpose was to bring blessing to all the peoples of the world. And we know from the other end of the story that God always had in mind the Lord Jesus, that Jesus would come, the Son of God, become a man. He would die for us to bring forgiveness of sins to people from every language and country, every ethnic group and gender. And finally, to bring a new creation where evil is eradicated. That's the purpose of God. And here God is revealing some of his strategy. One step towards that is to give the nation of Israel that land of Canaan. It's one step on the way to us today and what Jesus has done. So what are we to learn from this story? Let me suggest a couple of things. The first is that God's promises bring fear. It certainly did to Rahab and to Jericho. If God had drowned the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea because they'd enslaved Israel, if God had demolished the armies of Og and Sion because they opposed God, if God did that to keep his promises to free Israel and give them a land, then nothing can stop God. Nothing will stop God. He is a God who acts. He doesn't just say things. He doesn't just make empty promises. He delivers on what he promises. And he will keep doing that till his promises reach their final purpose. Rahab knows that, and she's terrified. And it makes me ask the question, does my message, my gospel, put the 